Hi everyone, my name's Lynn if I don't know you. Our reading tonight is um, Zechariah chapter 12. Please follow along behind or in your Bibles. Zechariah 12, a prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth and who forms the human spirit within a person declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot, like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honour of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. Well, thanks for that reading, Lynn. Um, and let me add my welcome to Mark's. If you are new or visiting, it's great to have you with us. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. And as you've been hearing, uh, most importantly, perhaps from the kids, uh, we've been working through this book called Zachariah. And um, you may have heard a few numbers bandied around in that video. Um, this was actually written about 500 years before Jesus came. So we're talking about 500 BC. Um, so that's where we are in this prophecy. Uh, but it has a lot to say to us today in terms of uh, how we might respond. And I think we'll see tonight that um, yeah, there's a lot that applies to our lives. So let me pray and ask that God will help us as we come to his word, that he might really show us uh, how we might respond to him rightly. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can meet here tonight. Uh, we do thank you for your word to us. 
uh, that it is living and active. Uh, we understand that your word speaks to us today, that we hear your voice, your instruction to us as we hear what was recorded. And so we pray that you might help us to not only hear how we might respond to you, but that you would shape us and change us, that we might uh, respond to your word as you call us to. Help us tonight, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, a friend of my youngest sister uh, rented an apartment through Airbnb in New York. It was one of those deals where the couple that owned the apartment was going to be away for two or three weeks, and, and so she could have it in that time. It was a good deal. It was very central. New York was right near the subway. She thought this would be great. There was just one catch that came with it. Uh, they had a fairly uh, aged Labrador, which you needed to care for, and it had been unwell in the previous period. Anyway, she was having a great time in New York, but she gets about halfway through her stay there, and wouldn't you believe it, uh, the dog passes away overnight. And then she thinks, what am I going to do with the body of this dog? And eventually she thinks, oh, I'll just have to ring a vet up and try and get some help. She rings a local vet nearby, and they kindly say to her, look, bring um, the dog to us and we'll dispose of the body. She thinks, right, okay, I can do that, except I haven't got a car. Um, and then she looks it up on her phone. Yeah, well, they're nearby and it's right on the subway. So I could just go on the train, take the dog on the train. I can get to the vet and they'll deal with it. How am I going to take the dog? Um, you know, it'll look bad if I'm carrying it. I'll get lots of awkward questions. And besides, it's really heavy. It's a big dog. Um, so she emptied out her suitcase, her travel bag, and put the dog in there, zipped it up, and gets on the subway. Well, she gets to the right place, um, got onto the correct platform. She just needs to go up these huge flight of stairs to get to the vet that's up above on street level. And she gets to the bottom of the stairs and thinks, wow, this is going to be hard. And then this kind guy comes over and offers to help her take the bag up the stairs. And she thinks, wow, this is fabulous. This good Samaritan has come along. It's going to help me carry the bag up. This will be great. And then he takes it one step and he says, wow, this is heavy, lady. What have you got in this bag? And then she's thinking, Labrador, I can't, I can't say that. Um, what kind of sick person takes around a body in a bag? And so she would think of the first word that came to mind that starts with L then, uh, lab, uh, laptops. I've got a bag full of laptops. Well, suddenly this guy showed amazing commitment to carry the bag. In fact, he bolts up the stairs and disappears with the bag of laptops. <laughs> and she chases him to the top of the stairs, but he's long gone by the time she gets to the street level. I guess a little bit later he got a surprise when he went to sell his stolen laptops. <laughs> you know, sometimes offers of help can't be trusted. You know, we're, we're left empty-handed. Uh, the assistance never materialises. We're left alone. We're frustrated. Perhaps we doubt that anyone really uh, can be trusted from that point on. We doubt their motives. Is there anyone really who's in our corner who's going to help us? And perhaps for some people even, uh, there comes that nagging feeling that, well, maybe they're not worthy of help or support. Maybe they don't deserve somebody to come along and assist them. You know, in one sense, as we get to these final chapters of the book of Zechariah, we're talking about a nation, the nation of Israel, which at that point had come back from 70 years in exile. They'd been destroyed, their city, Jerusalem, their capital had been just smashed to pieces, and they'd been dragged away to this foreign country where they'd been languishing for 70 years. 
They've now been brought back to their country. They've been back for 20 or 30 years at this point. But life's hard. They're rebuilding. Things aren't going well. Even all that time in exile hasn't changed their hearts. They're not people that they really want to be. They're still treating each other badly at times. They're still struggling with idolatry uh, that had been a problem even before they went into exile. Things haven't fully changed. And there's all these enemies around them, these other nations that really don't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And more than that, there's this enemy within, their, their own sin, their own struggle with being the people they want to be. And so for them, there's this sense that, well, God keeps reminding us through this prophet Zechariah that we're not what we should be, and yet he's somehow offering us a fresh start. You know, is this really going to happen? And so I think the big question uh, in this last section of the book is why can we be sure that God will help us? Why can we be sure that God will help us? It was a big question for them at the time, given the circumstances. But it's a question that we can face today. You know, is God really for me? Is he really in my corner? Why would God help me if I came to him? Well, two answers to that question tonight. Uh, the first answer is this. Because he promises to strengthen his people. Because God promises to strengthen his people. So notice again uh, what was recorded in Zechariah 12, verses 1 to 3. I'll come up on the screen. A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, who forms the human spirit within a person, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding nations reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations have gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations, all who try to move it will injure themselves. So in this first part of chapter 12, there's this focus on God's protection and God's strengthening of his people, which centers on this city of Jerusalem. And the description here in verse 1 of God's creative power and his work in verse 1 is really an allusion back to the very start of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, where it talks about God creating the universe. And what's being said here effectively is for God to recreate Jerusalem, to re-establish his people, let alone establish the promised eternal kingdom, is equivalent to a new act of creation. It would be that miraculous. It's like starting again. And yet before any of that can happen, there's going to be suffering and difficulty for God's people at that time. And that's what verses 2 to 9 outline for us. You might have noticed in verse 2 that God talks about making Jerusalem a cup. It might sound a bit weird, making a city a cup. But the idea of the cup in the Bible is that it's a picture of something that's overflowing, in this case with God's anger or wrath, against sin in the world. In this case, particularly against the nations that have come against his people. And so God's going to make Jerusalem in a cup in the sense that they will come against the city of Jerusalem but God, through the Israelites, will judge those nations. He will give the Israelites victory, and those that have come against them with wrong motives will be destroyed. And this is a big turnaround because previously, Jerusalem themselves, God's people, had drunk God's cup of wrath because of their idolatry. As I mentioned, the Babylonians had come against them because they had turned away from their God. God brought foreign nations that destroyed the place. But now things are reversed. 
And Jerusalem's going to remain intact. It's going to be an immovable rock, we read in verse 4. And those that throw themselves against it, as it were, are going to be smashed up. Jerusalem will remain intact. God will give a miraculous victory to his people. And so there's this picture of God shielding and strengthening those in an unlikely situation where they're surrounded by enemies. And that continues that theme in verses 7 to 9, where God speaks in particular about how he's helping the people in this situation. So notice there, the Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honour of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that even the feeblest amongst them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And so the outcome here is that God will help and protect his people. He'll make even those that are really weak strong like David. David was the greatest king of Israel. And so they always looked to him as like the ex, you know, example par excellence of the great leader, the strong one who defeated the giant Goliath and so forth. Yet even for David, he only had victories because God strengthened him. It wasn't David. It was that God enabled him. It wasn't his own ability. And so here God is saying the same thing, that he will strengthen people that seem weak in the face of their enemies, facing trial and suffering. God can do it. He can enable people to do more than they could possibly believe. And you know that theme is one that runs right through the Bible. It's still true the Bible says, of people who trust in God today. Those who are Christians will know that the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you because my power will be made perfect in weakness. What might that look like? Well, in 1939, let me give you a story. William Sangster uh, became the pastor of Central Methodist Hall in London. It's just down the road from Westminster Abbey. He became known as Wesley's successor, who was the great sort of leader and establisher of the Methodist Church. He was probably the most loved preacher in London of this era. But his very first service at church, when he got up to speak, he had to announce to the congregation that World War II had just been declared. And so it was going to be a very disrupted start to things. Within weeks, uh, there started to be the bombing of London. And so people were feeling like this is the end of the world. You know, our whole city is collapsing here. Bombs are landing everywhere. And this pastor decided to change his church into a bomb shelter and a refuge for people that needed help. And he actually brought in all these families from poor suburbs so that he had hundreds of people living in the church and this went on for four and a half years, for 1,688 nights, day after day after day, not a day off. He cared for all these displaced and afraid people that were sheltering in his church, providing support for them. And can you believe in the midst of this Herculean effort, he also continued to teach the Bible to people every Sunday and studied and completed a PhD at the same time. And people said, how is he possibly doing these things? But he was always quick to say, it's not that I'm really able or I've got any strength. God is enabling me to do this. I don't have any power in myself, but he has provided for us, enabled this to happen. And we just thank God 
for his ability to strengthen the weak. And that brings me to a second answer to this question. Why can we be sure that God will help us? Well, most importantly, and the Bible focuses on this over and over, because he sent his son to cleanse us. Because he sent his son to cleanse us. Notice again what's recorded in verses 10 to 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself. So there's this continued focus on this next section, on this house of David, the great king. It was this great promise that there'd be a descendant in the line of David who would come, would be the anointed great king they were looking for. It's always referred to in the Bible as the Messiah or the Christ. And so there was this promise that this one would come. God's people would look forward to this one. But suddenly we get this description here in verse 10 of a reference in the person in the line of David who would be pierced. And it seems to have come out of this great battle that we've read about in verses 1 to 9. Seems like this great leader in Israel would actually be pierced. And suddenly we see that God's people would look and mourn and they're actually going to be really sorrowful. And it's because they've inflicted the mortal wound on their leader. But even more than that, because God hasn't enabled them to appreciate what they've done, God would pour out a spirit of grace and supplication so that they would grasp the gravity of what they have now committed this reference to a spirit here uh, might be just simply a right attitude that the people suddenly see and appreciate what they've done. But the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, all associate the giving of the Holy Spirit with the day of God's kingdom coming. And so it seems likely that God's spirit has therefore enabled this grace and supplication to change his people. They suddenly realize what they've done. And the phrase they're grieving for a firstborn son is meant to just convey the depth of anguish that they're so upset about what has happened. And it talks in verse 11 about the morning will be as great as Hadad Rimon in Megiddo. What is that about? Well, it's harking back to a, an event in the previous centuries in the life of the nation of Israel. They'd had this great king named Josiah. They loved him. Everybody loved him. He was a great leader. And one day he decided to go out in battle against the Egyptians, and he was killed in the battle by Pharaoh Necho. And it led into this huge period of mourning for the whole nation that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so what they're saying is the depth of anguish that the nation felt at that point in the past will be even greater now if possible. And while it's not explicit here in these verses, the suggestion here, the implication, is they've done the wrong thing, that they're deserving of judgment, but yet God has moved them. He showed mercy to them by helping them to grieve and see their sin. And so this word supplication is to pray for mercy. It's to ask God to forgive, to understand what they've done. But it does come back to this key question, you know, the identity of the one who is pierced. Notice firstly in verse 10, it's Yahweh or it's God who is actually speaking. 
He's the one who's poured out his spirit. He's the one who says, they look on me, the one they have pierced. But did you notice then in the very next phrase, it shifts from the first person to the third person and suddenly says, and they will mourn for him. What's going on there? How is it that God the Father, the invisible creator and sustainer of the universe, could be pierced, could die? How can the creator die? Well, the root of this word pierce is actually uh, means to stab or wound with a weapon. It's like a thrust of the weapon. And given the mourning of these verses here where the people are so overwhelmed, it's clear that the person that is pierced actually dies. But we've been seeing throughout the book of Zechariah that we get these titles, the branch, the shoot, the shepherd, the king. And we've seen over and over and over that these are all references pointing forward to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah who was to come. And so it's not God the Father that is pierced, but it's his son that is pierced. That's why suddenly they mourn for him in the third person as God speaks. And all this is confirmed in the chapter that follows in chapter 13 because we get in verse 7 of chapter 13 this statement by God the Father. He says, A wake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so the death of this anointed one, this pierced one, this outpouring of grief is about the death of Jesus. He's looking forward 500 years as he writes down this prophecy. And then there's the impact of this death. What is the impact of this pierced one? What does it achieve? Why does this happen? Well, Zechariah 13 verse 1, in the very start of the next chapter, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. See, earlier in the book of Zechariah in chapter 3, we read how sin would be removed from the land in a single day. And now we know how that can happen, how that will be fulfilled. It's through the death of the Christ who is to come. And the fountain that is actually opened is a prophecy about Christ's blood being shed for us as he dies on the cross. And that's actually taken up in the Gospels. The Apostle John in John 19 writes this, quoting Zechariah 12. Notice this, John 19 verse 33. But when they came to Jesus, this is as he died on the cross, and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus sighed with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, Zechariah 12, they will look on the one they have pierced. You see, it's the once for all sacrifice of Jesus that pays our debt before God, that can make dirty sinners clean before God that can remove the stain of sin once and for all. Now, stains, we know what it's like physically. We can talk about a stain physically, about being dirty and then being cleaned up, right? If you are wanting to get messy or dirty, there are a number of festivals, did you know, around the world today that can help you do that to the nth degree. There's the Buryong Mud Festival in South Korea. I don't know if you've seen this. It allows you to get dunked in truckloads of magic mud, they call it, for what is a wild party that goes on for about two weeks. 
apparently it's really good for your skin, so it doesn't matter. Just go for it. And But then again, maybe you're not into mud. Perhaps you'd rather a food fight. You know, there is the greatest tomato fight in the world, arguably the world's biggest food fight. It's called La Tomatina. It involves 20,000 people each year in this riotous vegetable war. It's in this small Spanish town called Buno. The Spanish do things well, don't they? Last Wednesday of August of every year, they ship in 150,000 tomatoes for ammunition for this fight that goes for one to two hours. And you literally paint the town red and everyone near you. Now, we know what it's like to get dirty and then imagine how great it would be to have a nice hot shower and get cleaned up after that. But when we're talking about a spiritual stain, when we're talking about our sin, it's not a self-help project where I can do it and fix it myself. It's a lot different. Maybe you've read Norman Mailer's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Executioner's Song, or maybe you saw the 1982 television movie of the same name starring Tommy Lee Jones. They document a true story. It's about a guy named Gary Mark Gilmore who was an American criminal who got this international notoriety everywhere around the world because he insisted on the death penalty being carried out on him. He committed two murders, you see, in the state of Utah in 1976. And in October of that year, after refusing to defend himself in court, they sentenced him to death. But the death penalty wasn't carried out straight away as they'd planned because the American Civil Liberties Union tried to stop the death penalty being enacted in his case. And so they got delays through the court system. And then they asked him about this. Are you happy about what's happening? They're trying to save your life. And he said to the reporters, this is my life and this is my death. It's been sanctioned by the courts that I die and I accept that. Why would a person speak like that? Well, let me tell you why. Because shortly before his death on January 17, Gilmore wrote a letter to his girlfriend at the time and stated this. It seems that I know evil more intimately than I know goodness. And that's not a good thing. I want to be made even, to be made whole, my debts paid for, whatever it may take, to have no blemish, no reason to feel guilt. I'd like to stand in the sight of God, to know that I'm just and right and clean. And when you're this way, you know it. And when you're not like me, you know that too. Notice that theme of being made clean, of freedom from guilt, of having our debts before God paid. It's not something that even our own death can pay for, which he thought might somehow help. It's something that only Jesus' death can pay for. Only Christ's death can achieve for us what we long to feel. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see that? It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't add to what Jesus has done. You can't be a good enough person to outweigh the bad things in your life. The Bible says over and over and over again, there's nothing you can do to fix the problem of sin, but God has fixed it for you in the sending of his Son. The solution is provided for you. It's just whether you receive that solution in your own life. 
Well, what does all that mean as we think about Zechariah 12 and 13? You know, is the only fulfillment of these chapters about the death of Jesus, or is there more to it than that? I mean, what about the context of this battle that ends all battles? Because there's no great battle as Jesus dies. There's no armies going hammer and tong against each other in the midst of Jesus dying on the cross. So what happens there? Well, as we've seen as we've gone through the book of Zechariah, prophecy can be fulfilled in multiple horizons. That is, it can be fulfilled at different points in time in different events. And that's what's happening here in Zechariah 12 and 13. It's not only fulfilled in the death of Jesus, but it's also fulfilled in the return, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And so these events are taken up by Jesus himself, even as he's speaking, even as he speaks in the Gospels. He talks about the end of time. Notice what he says in Matthew 24, verse 30, which connects in exactly with Zechariah 12. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So we told that the peoples of the earth, all nations will mourn because they'll realize how wrong they were about Jesus and his claims, that he really is the Son of God at that moment when he comes in all his power. And those same words, very similar words, are taken up by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. In that verse, we see these words, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. See, both of these passages clearly depict the end of time, the end of history as we know it. And so how are we to be ready for that moment? What will protect you or help you on that great day? Well, the only thing we've been seeing over and over through this book of Zechariah is that you become part of God's family, that you're actually included in his people. That is the one help and protection. So at the end of Zechariah chapter 13, we get these words in verse 9 of how God will strengthen and protect those who are his. They will call on my name and I will answer them. That is those who have trusted in him. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. That's our hope, to trust in the one who is pierced for us so that we might enter into God's people, be included through faith in Jesus and his death on the cross. But you see, for some of us here tonight, we may not yet have entered into God's family, may not have placed our trust in Jesus. We haven't yet come home to God. You know, the Christian author Max Licardo uh, tells a story of a young uh, Christian girl named Christina who longed to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood and to seek out a better life for herself. Uh, she lived in a really poor neighborhood. Her father had left. She had her mum, and she dreamed of a better life in the city. And one morning she just slipped away into the city and broke her mother's heart. No note, not telling her what she was doing. But her mother, knowing what life on the streets would mean for her young, attractive daughter, her mother Maria hurriedly packed herself to go and find her. But before she went into the city on a bus, she went to a pharmacy and she took as many photos of herself as she could, little black and white photos, and then went into the city. 
And because she knew with her purse full of small black and white photos that the only way was that she had to leave a trail of pictures of herself, she went to every place, every bar, every hotel, every nightclub, any place with a reputation because she knew her daughter had no way of earning money but also she was too stubborn to give up. And so at every single place she went to, she would fasten her photo, tape it onto a bathroom mirror, tack it onto a bulletin board in a hotel, fasten it in the corner of a photo booth in the hope that at some point her daughter might come across it. And then she ran out of her money and she went home to her village. And it was some weeks later before her daughter Christina descended the stairs at one place that she was living and suddenly saw in the corner this small picture of her mother and her eyes burned and her throat tightened and she went up and picked up this photo. And as she turned it over, written on the back with this compelling invitation, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. So she did. You know, perhaps God is calling you home to him tonight. I want to tell you that every single person in the world is a sinner. Every single person is in need of God's forgiveness. None of us meet God's perfect standard. But he offers us wonderfully, through his son Jesus, a fresh start. Life where things are put back together, where we're given a clean slate, where we're cleansed of our sin because of this pierced one, his son, who gave up his life for us. We're saved by grace, not by anything we've ever done or will ever do. We can't add to what Jesus has done. We simply need to accept the gift. And that's why I want to say to you tonight, if you put your trust in God through his son Jesus, you can be sure that God will help you. He promises to. He went to such great lengths to send his son to die in your place. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. You give us what we don't deserve. None of us are deserving of your love, and yet you reach out to us anyway in the giving of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that in him we have one who was pierced for us, who bore our sin, our rejection of you, so that if we trust in him and his finished work for us, that we have forgiveness full and free, that we can be included in your family as your sons and daughters, simply by faith. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful good news. Help us to take hold of it, to grasp it for ourselves that we might know what it is to share in the forgiveness you offer. We pray this in Christ's powerful name. Amen.